When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our podcast in a moment, but first, I want to talk a little bit about KillerPodcasts.com. Killer Podcasts is a channel from the Evergreen Podcast Network. We are currently in the top five of all of their 40 podcasts. On Killer Podcasts' channel, we are number two. We want to be number one. The only way we can get there is by you. Keep sharing our podcast with friends and family. Let them know how easy it is to follow us. We know you can help us get there. Thank you for all of your support. And now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our award-winning journalist, Paula Slice, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories the Akron Beaker Journal. Hi, everybody. Most people don't remember the name of the second man to walk on the moon. It was Buzz Aldrin, by the way, leaving his footprints just behind Ohio-born Neil Armstrong. Likewise, many don't recall the name of the second black man to cross the color barrier for Major League Baseball. Although even non-baseball fans can usually recall Jackie Robinson as being the first, back when he signed with the Brooklyn Dodgers of the National League in 1947. But in Ohio, we should know who number two is, because he was Larry Doby, signed by the Cleveland Indians three months after Jackie Robinson made history and the first black player of the American League. As the New York Times once wrote in an editorial, Larry Doby integrated all those American League ballparks where Jackie Robinson never appeared, and he did it with class and clout. So, what was it like for Doby, given the daunting task of integrating a white man's sport in a country that was still very much segregated. Several people have written his biography, but Doby famously refused to name names or reveal the worst of what he lived through. He wouldn't even bear his soul to his family. When Doby's son and namesake was a boy, he asked his famous dad, tell me about when you played. His father would shake his head and say, I don't live in the past. Later, 
an adult Larry Jr. tried to get his father to sit down in front of a video camera just to preserve his story for the family archives. Dobie would shake his head and say, it's in the history books. So there's a part of Larry Dobie's story that we'll never know. But since much of his life and career was in the spotlight, we know a big part. And this is it. Lawrence Eugene Doby was born in 1923 in Camden, South Carolina, to Etta and David Doby. He was the grandson of slaves who had been given their freedom by the Civil War. His dad played semi-pro ball before dying in a drowning accident at the age of 37. Larry was just eight when he lost his dad. After that, his mom moved to Patterson, New Jersey to take a domestic job, and he stayed behind for a few years living with other family members. Larry recalled his neighborhood as being integrated. The police chief lived down the street, and Larry played sandlot baseball with his son. He said he grew up largely unaware of the widespread segregation in the country, It was an ignorance that made for a blissful childhood, but one that would make things perhaps a bit more painful for a young man who was destined to be part of an extraordinary change. When it came time for high school, Larry moved to New Jersey with his mother and made a name for himself at Patterson's Eastside High School. He played baseball and basketball. He was a wide receiver in football He even lettered in track. The school and the teams were racially integrated. Still, he got his first real taste of America's segregated culture when Eastside High won the state's football championship. The team was invited to an exhibition game in Florida, but the Florida promoters would not allow Larry, the only black on the football team, to participate. His New Jersey teammates supported him by voting to turn the invitation down. Larry graduated from Eastside in 1942 with the offer of a full athletic scholarship to play basketball at Long Island University in Brooklyn. At first, he accepted it because it meant he would be closer to his high school sweetheart, Helen Kirby. But before spring was over, He got an offer to play baseball for the Newark Eagles of the Negro National League. He took it and transferred to Virginia Union University to be closer to the team. He was 17, and they paid him $300. To keep his amateur status, he signed using the alias Larry Walker, and local reporters were told he was from Los Angeles. It was also agreed that he would only play until September when he would start classes. Larry played his first professional game May 31st of that year against the New York Cubans at Yankee Stadium. He finished the season with a batting average of 391. He didn't get to play the next year or the year after that because World War II was underway. When Larry turned 18, he joined the U.S. Navy and served in the Pacific. As a matter of fact, 
He was stationed on a Pacific island in October of 1945 when a news report on Armed Forces Radio announced Jackie Robinson had signed a contract to play for the Montreal Royals, a minor league of the Brooklyn Dodgers. A black man had made it to the farm system of an all-white league. It was the first time Larry even allowed himself to think it possible that one day he might play for the major leagues. He would later say, I tried never to dream that far ahead. Larry left the Navy in January of 1946. He married Helen and rejoined the Newark Eagles, where he was an all-star, one of the top batting averages, and helped his team win the Negro World Series. Larry was so good that when people started whispering about who might be the first black man to play in the major leagues, his was the name that came up the most. Larry, of course, wasn't the first to be called up to the big show. That was Jackie Robinson. After a full season in the minors, he played his first major league game for the Brooklyn Dodgers of the National League in April of 1947. But Larry was right behind. Just three months later, he became the second when he was signed by the Cleveland Indians. Here's how that came about. The Indians owner and team president, Bill Veck, was a maverick who had been a leader in trying to integrate baseball for years. After Robinson was signed, he moved quickly to be the next. Now, just as Dodgers general manager Branch Rickey had taken great care in selecting the right player for what was really a big cultural experiment... Vec knew he needed to find someone with the right stuff, a player with unimpeachable talent, but also someone who could withstand the taunts and the pressures that were sure to come. Encouraged in part by sports reporters who kept throwing out Larry Doby's name, Vec sent a scout to check him out. But Vec wouldn't tell the reporters anything about his plans. He dismissed their inquiries, saying only, One afternoon, when the team trots out on the field, a Negro player will be out there with them. Now, one of the biggest differences in the way Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby were signed had to do with how the Negro League was handled when Major League Baseball came to take their players. The Dodgers did not feel compelled to offer Robinson's team, the Kansas City Monarchs, any compensation. Since the Negro League was not a Major League Baseball team, they viewed Jackie Robinson as a free agent. Something different happened in Doby's case, and it set a precedent going forward. Now, Larry, as I said, played for the Newark Eagles, which was owned by Effa Manley. Effa was a unique force, a white woman married to a black man and the only woman in an otherwise all-male industry. She marched in protests against businesses that wouldn't hire blacks and funded many civil rights causes. 
She was also very committed to bringing respect to the Negro League. When Vec signed Larry Doby in July of 1947, Effa negotiated his release, and Vec paid her team and the Negro League $15,000 for taking away their second baseman. It was a move that showed a measure of respectability that the Negro League had never before seen from the majors. The day after the deal was struck, July the 4th, Vec sent an escort to go get Larry. Larry was in the middle of a doubleheader. He had to leave the stadium and board a train from Newark to Chicago, where the Indians were set to play the White Sox the next day. This was another difference between the experiences of Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby. Jackie was signed to Brooklyn's minor league team and spent an entire year in Montreal acclimating to the limelight. Doby was on the field for the Newark Eagles one day, and literally the next day he was making his major league debut. Larry met his new teammates for the first time at the clubhouse of Comiskey Park on July the 5th, and it was, well, awkward. The players were told to line up in front of their lockers. Then Larry was brought in and announced. He walked the rows of the men, offering his hand to each one. Four men wouldn't shake it at all. Two of them even made a show of turning their backs on him when he tried. Others gave him a limp hand with no warmth. Some sources said Bill Vec paid attention to who refused to shake hands with Larry and made sure they were traded before the next season began. Then the team ran onto the field for warm-ups. While everyone else interacted or paired up, Larry stood around, alone, languishing for minutes. And then Cleveland Indians shortstop Joe Gordon asked Larry to play catch. Larry would never forget that kind gesture, and the two men would become close friends. Now Larry entered the game in the seventh inning as a pinch hitter. There was no big movie moment for his first at-bat. He struck out. Later, he would say that time at the plate, and the next several times at the plate, he couldn't stop his teeth from chattering. After the game, Larry quickly showered and dressed without incident, but he would not have another opportunity to interact with the team the rest of that day because as they were taken to the Del Prado Hotel in downtown Chicago, Larry's skin color barred him from following. His escort took him to a hotel in Chicago's predominantly black South Side, and that's the way it went for a long time. In many cities throughout his playing career, he would have to take lodgings in a different hotel or eat at a different restaurant. Now that baseball fans knew the American League had a black player, they couldn't wait to get a look. 
the Indians and White Sox had a doubleheader the next day, and nearly 32,000 people were in attendance. By some accounts, a third of the crowd was black. It was a Sunday, and there were black churches who cut their services short so the entire congregation could attend. Larry Pinch hitted in that first game, and for the second, he started at first base. Now, Larry was traditionally a second baseman. First base requires a special mitt, larger so infielders have a bigger target to throw to, and uniquely curved for picking up and scooping balls that are thrown in the dirt. But nobody who had such a mitt was willing to loan it to him, not even Eddie Robinson, whom Larry was replacing in that game. Joe Gordon, the catcher who befriended Larry, intervened and found him a mitt from a White Sox player. In that game, Larry recorded his first major league hit and collected an RBI as the Indians went on to win. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. So Larry's entrance into the world of Major League Baseball happened in Chicago. Back in Cleveland, the Plain Dealer was trying to determine how local fans felt about a black man being added to the roster. A columnist reported that most fans he talked to only had one question. Can he hit? Well, that remained to be seen. In his rookie year, a very nervous Larry hit 156. That's five hits in 32 at-bats, a horrible statistic. One former Major League player, Rogers Hornsby, made the comment, Bill Veck did the Negro race no favor when he signed Larry Doby to a Cleveland contract. If he were white, he wouldn't be considered good enough to play with a semi-pro club. So in the offseason, Larry's time was his own, and he pursued his love of basketball. Back home in New Jersey, he joined the Patterson Crescents of the American Basketball League. They were a precursor to the NBA, and he became the first to break the color barrier of that league. Then, 
in the spring of 48, he traveled to Tucson, Arizona for his first spring training with the Indians. He became a student of the game, reading books about technique, taking outfield instruction from coach Bill McKechnie, and learning more from team manager Tris Speaker and farm system director Hank Greenberg. In an exhibition game that spring, he hit a home run that some estimated traveled 500 feet far beyond the center field fence. And doubts about Larry Doby started to vanish. Larry was solid all year long, compiling a batting average of 301 and collecting 14 home runs and 66 RBIs. Throughout it all, he accepted the abuse thrown his way, especially by the opposing teams. It was bad enough at one point that Vec tried intervening, asking American League President Will Harridge for support in getting players to rein in their obvious animosity. Behind the scenes, Larry Doby and Jackie Robinson encouraged each other through telephone chats. Larry would later say, Jackie and I agreed we shouldn't challenge anybody or cause trouble or we'd both be out of the big leagues just like that. We figured that if we spoke out, we would ruin things for other black players. That fall, the Cleveland Indians won the World Series. Actually, it was the last time they would win the World Series. And Larry Doby played a major role. In October, against the Boston Braves, he became the first black player in the majors to hit a home run during a championship. It came in Game 4. Here's the radio broadcast of that historic hit. With two down, up steps Larry Doby. Grounded out, Torgerson to Johnny Sane, who covered first in the first inning. Left-hand hitter. Johnny Sane delivers, sidearm fastball, swung on and missed. His foul tipped, and the ball bounced off the arm or leg, I believe, of Bill Macy. Anyway, it, it hurt him a little bit. He shake, shakes it off, though, and he's all right. Strike one, the count on Doby. Blue Boudreaux is on deck. Will hit next if Doby gets on. One to nothing, Cleveland, last half of the third inning. Stern-looking Johnny Sane ready. He's into the windup. Round comes the right arm of the pitch. An overhand fastball swung on. Hit high and deep in the right center field. The ball is going, going. It is gone. The first clubhouse afterward, the team celebrated, and Indians pitcher Steve Gromick, who knew that Larry's home run was the difference between a win and possible loss, 
threw his arm around Dobie. As the two men embraced, a photographer snapped a picture showing broad smiles and cheeks pressed together in pure joy. The image ran in newspapers all over the country and became famous for its symbolism. Larry would later say, That picture was more rewarding and happy for me than actually hitting the home run. The picture finally showed a moment of a man showing his feelings for me. I think enlightenment can come from such a picture. Back at his home in Patterson, New Jersey, the town threw him a parade. And during the off-season, he and some of his teammates were featured in a film called The Kid from Cleveland. But again, there was a limit to what white people were willing to accept. With bonus money from the World Series, Larry and his wife Helen set their sights on a house that happened to be in an all-white neighborhood. The residents petitioned to keep them out. It took the intervention from the mayor of Patterson to get them their chosen home. Larry's 13-year baseball career had ups and downs as well. In 1949, he collected 24 home runs, had a batting average of 326, and was picked as an all-star. Sports writers called him the best center fielder of the game, and he was named Cleveland Baseball Man of the Year by local sports writers. In the early 50s, he struggled with leg issues and pulled muscles, but still had moments of brilliance. In 1954, he was a key reason the Indians won 111 games, a figure that still has only been surpassed three times in all of Major League in more than a century. That year, he finished second in votes for the season's most valuable player and was the league's RBI leader and home run champion. Larry's last season with Cleveland was in 1955. His leg issues were back, and he played far fewer games, but he was picked for his seventh and final All-Star appearance. One Plain Dealer columnist was not going to miss him. Franklin Lewis wrote of his departure, He has been a controversial athlete. Highly gifted, he was frequently morose, sullen, and upon occasion, downright surly to his teammates. Larry had a response to that. He said, I was always looked on as a black man, not as a human being. And frankly, if Larry was sometimes sullen and surly, he sure had a right to be. In one incident, he slid into second base when the shortstop from the opposing team spat tobacco juice on him. Later, Larry would confide it was the worst injustice he ever experienced on the field. In 1951, an analysis was done after it was suggested pitchers were intentionally hitting Larry and other black players more often. And a study showed that to be true. Of eight black players in the league that year, They were hit by pitches a total of 68 times. That was an average of nearly nine times per man. There wasn't a single white player that year in either league that had been hit 
that many times. But there was also wild support, and he used that to get him through the tough times. In one interview, long after he retired, he said he hit better in southern cities where Jim Crow laws segregated black and white fans. He said, when I came to bat, I knew where the noise was coming from and who was making it. I felt like a quarterback with 5,000 cheerleaders calling my name. You know, most of them couldn't afford to be there. I never forgot them. Larry also never forgot his number one fan, Indians owner Bill Veck. He came to see Veck as something of a father figure. Larry shared this story during a visit to Kenyon College in 2009, a moment that encapsulated the kind of relationship they had. There was a restaurant in Miami that didn't allow uh, Afro-Americans. So we were down there with my wife and my daughter, my oldest daughter, Mm -hmm. and he was there. So he said, "Uh, we're going to this restaurant. Well, we had no idea that, that, you know, uh, Afro-American didn't go there. We get out of the car, and my my daughter was about maybe six or seven years old. Mm -hmm. And he puts her on his shoulder, and he walks right into the restaurant, and my wife and I are right behind him. And there's a table over there, and we sat at the table, and we ate, and we had a good time and all that. And after we uh, left, the next day he said to me, he said, you know what? I said, what? You're the first blacks ever ate in this restaurant. That's terrific. I said, what? I said, yeah. I said, what are you trying to do, get me killed? <laughs> As it comes to all players, Larry was eventually traded. After nine years with the Indians, he was sent to the Chicago White Sox. He led the team that year with 24 home runs. He played four more years, including a stint with the Detroit Tigers and even a brief return to Cleveland at one point, before retiring as a player in 1962. Baseball wasn't done with Dobie yet. He went on to hold a variety of positions, including spending 1974 as the Cleveland Indians' first base coach. And when Bill Veck purchased the Chicago White Sox in 1976, he made Larry the team's manager. And that made Larry number two again, the second black manager in all of Major League Baseball. In 1998, Larry was voted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Here's a one-minute clip from Larry's acceptance speech. I was born in a little small town in South Carolina called Camden. And there are a lot of people who had a lot to do with the success that I've had. Moved to Patterson, New Jersey. doing high school, and those people had a lot to do with my success. From, from Patterson, New Jersey, to the Newark Eagles, played against and with some of the greatest ball players that ever put on the uniform. From the Newark Eagles to the Cleveland Indians. And I must say this, that that town, 
treated me and my family with the greatest respect that any man could want. Larry and his wife, Helen, had five children. They were married 55 years before Helen died in 2001. Larry died two years later at the age of 79. Larry Doby has been inducted to many halls of fame, including the Indians Hall of Fame, the South Carolina Hall, and the New Jersey Hall. The Indians honored him in 2012 when Eagle Avenue, next to the ballpark, was renamed Larry Doby Way. Three years after that, they unveiled a life-sized bronze statue of him at the park. In Patterson, New Jersey, they have a field named for him. And a decade after he died, his image appeared on a U.S. Postal Service stamp. Larry once said, I was never bitter because I believed in the man upstairs. I continue to do my best. I let someone else be bitter. If I was bitter, I was only hurting me. I prefer to remember Bill Veck and Jim Hagen and Joe Gordon, the good guys. There is no point in talking about the others. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And we will see you next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode... We'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.